Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, December 12, 2021. The share ID numbers for Friday, December 10th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 18,220, that's one eight two two zero and for the ten AM Eastern Big Book study eighteen thousand two hundred and twenty one. That's one eight two two one. This morning a vision for you presents Accepting Spiritual Help A Personal Story of Transformation. In our disease of compulsive overeating, we found complete despair, powerlessness. We cannot solve the problem of compulsive overeating by ourselves. We come to realize that anything that comes from our own resources, our will, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, our effort, our self-knowledge, philosophies, morality, goals, or good intentions just won't solve our problem of compulsive overeating. Our human resources alone simply aren't sufficient. Our situation actually is not hopeless. Far from it, there is hope, but that hope lies outside ourselves. As the big book states, we had to find a power by which we could live and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. But where and how were we to find this power? The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process of accepting spiritual help, a process resulting in a spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to overcome compulsive overeating. We submit to a simple process, that is not easy, yet takes us to a place we've never been. We didn't even know it existed. We are taken from the dark, sick, and shadowy world of disease to the light of recovery. We are changed in the way we think. We are changed in the way we feel. And especially, we are changed in the way we behave. Through accepting spiritual help, the sunlight of the spirit deep down inside us is allowed to shine up and through us. Joining us today to share her personal story of transformation is Rachel P., a recovered compulsive overeater from Colorado. Rachel is dedicated to the application and growth of the 12-step process, and she's here to share her experience, strength, and hope with all of us today. And it's with great appreciation I welcome Rachel P. to the line. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning. This is Rachel P., Recovered Compulsive Overeater. Can I be heard? Yes. Awesome. Thanks so much for that introduction, Leah. That was lovely. Um, Yeah, I'm Rachel P. I'm a Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Denver, Colorado. And I'm really grateful to be here. I'm going to share my story of transformation today. And, you know, I want to start with 
this paragraph from the big book, and there's the solution, bottom of page 25. If you are as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle of the road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible. And if we had passed into the region from which there is no return to human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go to the better end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. And I want to talk today about my story and what brought me to accepting spiritual help and what that's looked like for me. Um, you know, and this this paragraph is especially poignant for me because I was someone who identified as an atheist for more than a decade in my life, and um, you know, I'll talk about all of the middle of the road solutions, how per, how the disease continued to progress in my life and just made me so miserable. And, you know, I'll talk about um, what it meant for me to accept spiritual help and, you know, where this disease took me such that I had to accept, I had no other choice. I'll talk about, you know, how impossible and intolerable this disease you know, made me that, you know, this is the last, this is the last door and I, I, I needed to pull it open, I needed this solution because everything I had tried was not working. So um, to start, you know, I was born in in Denver, um, and a couple years later, we, my family, I'm the oldest of three, and my family moved us to uh, New Jersey, Mount Laurel, New Jersey, when I was about two years old, and around that time, I was diagnosed with leukemia, and I was treated at um, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And, um, you know, I, I don't have many memories of my childhood, I think in part because I, I blocked out a lot of those memories of that experience. Um, you know, from what I was told, it was, it was really painful. You know, the chemo treatments were um, awful. Um, I, I nearly died. Um, I was on an experimental form of chemotherapy, and my parents, you know, the side effects were so bad that my parents decided to, you know, to take me off. And you know, they thought that I was going to, to die. Um, and shortly after, I went into remission. Um, and I, you know, I'm I'm fairly certain that this disease was kind of triggered in me. I, I think I was you know predisposed to it. Um, I'm a compulsive eater because I'm a compulsive eater. I don't necessarily need to know why, but um, I have you know what what few memories I do have in my childhood, especially you know up to age five. Um, a lot of them relate to food, and I do have a specific memory of this platter of cookies at the, you know, children's hospital, and how I was just wildly obsessed with, you know, what varieties of cookies there were, and wanting to make sure that I had, you know, one of each. And there's actually a photo of me um, with that platter of cookies, and you know, looking up guiltily into the camera, um, you know, with my bald head and this, you know, beanie over my head um yeah and i don't have many memories of of that time um and you know i do believe that the disease was triggered in me very young and you know later um after i went into remission um you know things were things were good things were stable you know my my brother is two years younger than me my sister's five years younger than me and um you know when i was seven years old, my sister was two years old, she was diagnosed with leukemia as well. And um, they caught it earlier because they knew what to look for. 
And, um, you know, while I don't have many memories of, of my experience with leukemia, I do, you know, have memories of her experience and her treatments and the visits to the oncology office. And by this time we had moved back to Denver. Um, we moved back to Denver when I was about five years old after my treatments. And, um, you know, I, I remember, you know, my, my mother like administering chemotherapy to my sister in the kitchen. Um, my sister would stand on the kitchen counter and my mom, you know, my mom was, was very tall. She was six one, and she, you know, she would stand on the floor and um, inject the chemotherapy into or the Broviac attached to her heart. And then she would, you know, after every treatment, she would give my sister a handful of chocolate chips and, um, you know, and so I think about that memory, you know, that I, there was this association, um, you know, that, that, you know, food is ease and comfort. And, you know, while neither of my siblings have this problem, it just, um, it was sparked in me. And um, by about age eight or nine, I started to gain weight. And, you know, um, I didn't necessarily know that I had a problem until then, until it started to manifest on my body. And you know, I like to say that there's a special kind of hell growing up as a fat kid. Um, and I definitely experienced that. I wasn't bullied um, at all, but I was just very lonely. And, you know, I very quickly internalized the sense of shame that, um, you know, I'm, I'm not okay, I'm not enough. And I heard, you know, from everybody in my life, like, you need to lose weight, you need to eat less. And, um, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't have words towards the disease. I didn't know that I was binging. I just knew that I liked food. I liked certain types of foods and that they made me feel good. Um, and, you know, my weight just kept climbing and climbing over the years. And um, when I was younger, I was a dancer. Um, I did, you know, ballet and tap and jazz and later hip hop. And about age, I want to say 11, um, my my mom told me that the instructor of my of my dance class told me you know that i i was i was one of the better ones in class i was good at remembering choreography and um but but he had communicated to her that i could not move up a level unless i lost weight and you know and at the same time like my doctor was telling me i needed to lose weight my mother my grandmother my aunt everybody in my life was telling me i needed to lose weight but you know, they, they, the solutions they offered were, you know, eat less, move more. And, um, you know, now that I have words for, you know, this problem that I have, um, you know, I, I can understand why those things didn't work, why those solutions didn't work for me. And, you know, I ended up dropping out of, of dance and became very sedentary and the weight just kept climbing and climbing. And, you know, it was, it was eating more and more in secret and, um, you know, my mom would not keep, for the most part, you know, the, the binge foods that I really wanted in the house. But my dad definitely has this problem too, and you know, so he would he would sneak in, you know, different things like fast food and candy, and you know, anytime that we had any of those like sexy foods, I would I would sneak them, I would binge them in secret, and you know, there were a few times that I was caught, but for the most part, I was I was pretty sneaky. Um, you know, and all the while, um, you know, in my household, you know, we were, uh, we did grow up you know, going to church just about every Sunday. Faith was really important to my mom, and she was very devout. Um, and we, we went to a, a Christian church, 
And, um, you know, it was was a big part of our lives. We prayed as a family every night. You know, usually it was my mom and my siblings. You know, before bed, we would pray at night. And then as I got older, she, she told me to pray on my own. And, you know, what I knew about prayer, what I was taught about prayer was, that uh, it was it was very very much uh conditional it was it was this uh, wish list kind of practice but you know god please please give me this please give me that please make this happen um that was that was what i knew of prayer at the time and you know i i remember at about you know 12 years old in the car with my mom and you know, i told her mom i feel like when i pray at night i'm not praying to anyone I'm not praying to anything. Like, I don't feel anything. And she didn't really understand where I, I, I believe she didn't understand where I was coming from because she she did have this sense of spirituality and belief and, and devout faith, this connection with a higher power. I did not. That had never, I had never been able to cultivate that in myself, um, you know, despite our, our involvement. And she didn't really know how to respond, and she just said, really? And that was kind of the end of the conversation. Um, but, you know, at 12 years old, I was I was questioning, you know, what I had been told about, you know, God and religion and spirituality. And, you know, I, I had religion, um, but I, 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 I now know that I didn't have spirituality, and I'll talk more about that later. Um, so... You know, my my weight just kept climbing and climbing, and I just kept getting stinkier and stinkier. And um, and at at age 13, my parents divorced. Um, there was a lot of conflict between my parents. You know, just constant fighting. And I was actually happy that they divorced because I just wanted the fighting to stop. But you know, when that happened, um, really the the verbal and emotional abuse that you know my dad had. You know, targeted toward my mom, kind of became t- more targeted towards me and my siblings, and um, I felt very alone because I felt misunderstood, you know, by my mom. Um, you know, the constant messages that I needed to lose weight, and you know, she, I, I now know she meant well, but um, you know, we just didn't understand each other. You know, and then my dad was just not a, a kind person. Um, you know, and he has this disease and others as well. Um, and um and in the next the next year was pretty tumultuous um my my mom was hospitalized um for a for suicidal ideation um really after the process of the divorce her what we now know um her mania really started to manifest um and become kind of more out of control than it had been before and she received a diagnosis of bipolar disorder and um she she called 911 and was hospitalized um for several weeks and um was put on some medication and you know came back home and you know we we tried our best to you know, set up the environment just so and um you know but that her her swings of mania and depression were just very extreme and there was there's was instability with her her medications and um in the in January of uh, in in, the, in between my two semesters of my freshman year of high school, um, she died by suicide, and um, I was in the home with her. It was, it was just the two of us in the home, and I found her, um, 
And, you know, I cried profusely the day that she died. I was, I was so distraught and it was such a traumatic experience for me. And after that, I shut it all down. I didn't let myself cry. Um, not at her funeral, not for at least four years after that. And, you know, all the while I'm a compulsive overeater. And um, what I know is that, what I feel is that food, you know, eases this, you know, whatever pain that I have or, you know, any emotion, I'm, I'm eating over it because, you know, that's what I do as a compulsive eater. And, um, you know, my dad moved back into the house and um, he, he became, his, the abuse really increased, um, verbal, emotional abuse and physical toward my brother. And, um, and what I knew was food um, because I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, and so I, I would often like isolate myself to um, the basement and uh, where my bedroom was and, and just binge. Um, and that's, that's what brought me ease and comfort. Um, and my weight just continued to climb and climb. And, um, you know, during this time, so, so at the time that my mom passed, I was in the middle of the confirmation process at my church. And, um, you know, when she died, because, you know, my what concept of God that I, I had was so conditional um, you know, I just completely turned away from, from it. I, I immediately, you know, dropped out of that, um, that process. And, um, you know, I, I, I thought to myself, if there is a God, I want nothing to do with it. Um, you know, this could happen to me, to my family, to my mom. Um, you know, I want nothing to do with God. And, um, and I went through a phase ages, 14 through 16 of exploring, um, exploring Wicca. And, you know, I, I read books on the topic and I, I had like an altar with the four elements. And I had, you know, this, this for the first time, like a higher power of my own understanding, like I got to choose my deity. And, you know, it did resonate with me in some ways. Um, it was a very, it was a very personal practice. And it was really related to, you know, nature, which appealed to me. Um, but even so, you know, throughout, throughout that exploration, I had this sense of, you know, this doesn't feel real. This doesn't feel like something that, um, that I can latch on to. You know, I, I kind of barely started to explore the sense of spirituality with that process, but, you know, I, I at about age 16, I, I turned away from that and I became a staunch atheist, um, you know, and, and I would proselytize it to anyone and everyone um, who crossed my path. Like, there is no God. You know, when we die, we die. Um, you know, it was a huge part of my identity. And, um, yeah, so about age 16, I became an atheist. And, you know, I... I, I remember, you know, somebody asked me at one point, like, do you, do you identify as an atheist because of, you know, the trauma you've experienced because of what happened to your mom? And at the time I was like, no. Um, <laughs> and now I can look back and say, well, yeah, that definitely was a precipitating factor. Um, yeah, that, that conditional sense of, of God and just, um, yeah, just 
complete and utter lack of humility that like I have the answers, this is the answer. I like I know this with certainty. Um, and anyway, um, I was, you know, I was so alone. I was so unmoored because I had, you know, no religion, no spirituality, like no healthy supports in my life. Um, I had like one friend um, in high school and, you know, I, I, I was, you know, surrounded by people, but I was just so alone. Um, and there was this pervasive sense of, you know, self-hatred and um, I would have these, you know, periods of like existential crisis every, every so often. They were kind of unpredictable and usually happened in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep. And just this incredible sense of dread. Um, and, you know, now I can put words to that experience. You know, and I look at Bill's story on page eight where he, he uses this term bitter morass self-pity. And the first time that I ever read that phrase, I was like, oh my gosh, like, I know that experience. Um, yeah, and just and the experiences of this word, or this book putting words to, you know, experiences that I've had is, is really powerful. Um, yeah, and I would, I would, I would go into the, you know, this bitter morass of self-pity, this quicksand of, you know, just rolling through like a Rolodex in my mind, like all the terrible things that had happened to me and, you know, um, why I'm so broken and alone and, you know, all the reasons that I, that I hate myself and, you know, my, my feelings around, you know, my body and how unacceptable and unattractive my body was, was like ever pervasive. And, you know, all the while I was still binging. Um, and my, uh, I, I hadn't weighed myself in years and, you know, I kind of like rationalized it in my mind, like, it's not that bad. Um, I definitely, yeah, I minimized it. And, um, I stepped on the scale when I went to the doctor um, after, you know, in between um, high school and, and going to college. Um, I went to uh, the University of Missouri for college and uh, I went to that doctor's appointment to get me immunizations and I stepped on the scale and it was one of those like manual like metal scales. And, you know, the, it, the little piece of metal just kept you know, they, they kept moving it further and further toward the left. And I think I, I'm tall and I, I think I, I carry my, I did carry my weight, you know, fairly well. Um, and I think that the doctor or the, the nurse, whatever, was, or was pretty surprised too, that, you know, the scale read 272 pounds and I could not believe it, um, that, that it, it had gotten that high. And, you know, I remember, you know, within the next couple of days, I, you know, I sat down at my, at the computer where I worked at the time. And, you know, I, I went onto this website and looked at, you know, BMI charts and, um, you know, different ways to lose weight. And I, I made a deal with myself. I'm going to lose 100 pounds in the next year. And, um, and, you know, I, I did lose 100 pounds, but it took me well, well, far more than a year. It took me about 10 years, and I'll talk more about that. Um, you know, and whereas, you know, prior to that, my disease really looked like binging. Um, that was kind of the extent of it. The way in which, for me, it got more progressive was, you know, when I got to college, I started over-exercising and obsessively tracking my calories and um, restricting. And... Um, 
I just became obsessed with weight loss and I started getting compliments. You know, people noticed that I had lost some weight and, you know, my, my, I was at my heaviest, I was a size 22 and I was able to buy, you know, 18s and then 16s and um, it's just more than anything else, this mission, this purpose of, of weight loss and um, just obsession with, with weight and body and food um, became my everything. And, um, you know, I got to college, it was a big, you know, environmental, physical change, obviously. And um, I couldn't not think about, you know, my mom, I had like blocked it out for, you know, four years from, you know, when it happened up to getting to college. And um, I just kept, you know, these memories and feelings about, you know, the grief around my mom's death started to come up. And, um, you know, I, because I was, you know, restricting and, um, you know, obsessively trying to lose weight. I, I was still binging, certainly, um, just about every other day. Like when my roommate would, you know, not be in, in our dorm room, I would, you know, I would binge. Um, and I would spend all my money on, on food at the, you know, the dining hall markets and, you know, Walmart and get my binge foods and then come home and eat it in secret. But, you know, because I was so desperately, like, white knuckling and trying to like lose weight and finding some success. Um, I, you know, I couldn't necessarily eat to the same extent that I had been before. I couldn't, you know, keep the monster down. And so I started self-harming as well to try to ease that pain and uh, cutting my arms. And um, some of my, my family members found out that I was doing that and they forced me to go and see a counselor and, you know, I shared with this counselor that I was, you know, struggling with binge eating, um, eating too much. And I don't think she really understood. Um, she gave me the intuitive eating, uh, or she gave me a book, excuse me. Um, she gave me a book and on the topic and she, you know, she told me to read it and, um, and, you know, I, I did and I tried the approach and it, you know, because what I now know is I'm a, I'm a compulsive overeater. Like, other solutions didn't work for me. And, you know, so I continued to binge eat and um, restrict and obsessively track my calories, obsessively weigh myself. And, you know, I, I, I did find, you know, some success. I was able to lose some weight, but I was just desperately holding on to it. And in my, you know, junior year of college, I became um, really depressed. And, you know, I, I had lost about 70 pounds in, in about you know, two, two and a half years. Um, I I remember stepping on the scale and it was just over 200. And I just wanted to get under 200 just so desperately. And, um, but, you know, with that depression um, and not being able to, you know, have the energy to exercise that, you know, over-exercise to the extent that I had been um, in my, in my last few years of college, I, I gained back 50 pounds and I graduated college and stepped on the scale and um, it, I weighed in at 250 pounds. And again, I was demoralized. I, I couldn't believe that I had, you know, let that happen. Um, and, you know, shortly after graduating college, I moved back to Denver and um, I just after a binge, I Googled, you know, can't stop binge eating. And, um, OA came up in the search results. And, you know, I was familiar with 12 steps because my dad had actually um, 
he he had recovered from a drug addiction in one of the 12-step programs and um so you know so i i had this willingness to go to a meeting because i was you know just desperate enough and i wanted this problem solved in me and you know i had tried so hard for so long to fix this in myself and it wasn't working so i went to a meeting and you know there were two other women there and um from what i remember like they they didn't when I, you know reflecting back now like they didn't appear to be like recovered or you know this problem didn't appear to be solved in them um and you know i sat there at the table with the two of them and i just cried like i couldn't even i could barely you know say two words um without just bursting out into tears because i just carried so much shame about you know having you know this problem and you know, my, my self-concept and just carried so much self-hatred. And, um, you know, it was something I really had not expressed to anyone and it was really terrifying to do so. Um, but I heard them read the steps aloud and, you know, they used the word God and I, I made a decision in that moment that this wasn't the solution for me because I couldn't, I couldn't, do it. I couldn't have anything to do with a God solution, you know, because I was very much an atheist. And, you know, like I mentioned, it was a huge part of my identity, you know, this, this, this identity as an atheist. And, um, you know, I, again, like words putting, or the book putting words to my experience, you know, the doctor's opinion, um, XXIV reads, the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement. And I was one of, I was the most cynical, like, that that phrase um definitely resonates with me you know i i absolutely refuse to accept you know this solution if it had anything to do with god if it had anything to do with religion or spirituality and um you know i over the next you know six years until i came to what was you know my second meeting ever um you know the cynicism was slowly chipped away almost like like when when i when i boil an egg and um maybe i didn't do it properly and it's like one of those really tricky ones to peel and i have to peel like i have to like chip away like really little pieces at a time um that was kind of the next six years for me i mean it's a silly metaphor but um just that cynicism became kind of chipped away over the next six years because over the next six years i um i i tried every solution i could think of um you know just really diving more deeply into the obsession, the over-exercise, the obsessively tracking calories and obsessively weighing myself. Um, and, you know, I was able to lose weight. I, you know, I lost 80 pounds from there over the next six years. Um, so I lost a hundred pounds net. Um, but I would vacillate between like 175 and like 195 over those years, you know, depending on like how much or little con quote unquote control I had over, you know, my, my binging behaviors. Um, and it was just absolutely miserable. I, you know, every waking moment was dedicated to, you know, what I was going to eat, what I wasn't going to eat what I had eaten, um, what, how much I was going to exercise, 
um, and just this ever pervasive like sense of shame around like the binging behavior and I couldn't put together you know more than a week if that without binging um, you know and when when I was at my heaviest weight in high school you know what my binges looked like and I think it's important to talk about food because that's our disease um, what my binges looked like were like you know I would I would get out of school, go across the street, eat a, an entire Chipotle burrito, go across the street to Starbucks and have a, you know, frappuccino, go to the grocery store and get, you know, a package of Little Debbie's, Cosmic Brownies or whatever, and a pint of Ben and Jerry's. And, you know, that was a binge for me. But in this, you know, more orthorexic stage, you know, in my 20s, you know, where I was desperately trying to hold on to the weight I had lost, you know, I would, I would restrict throughout the day, largely because I had binged the night before, and, you know, eat, eat you know, small measured meals, and, you know, after dinner, I would want something sweet, so I would have, you know, a, I would tell myself I'll have a bar of dark, or I'll have a, a piece of dark chocolate, so one piece would turn into two, which turned into three, which turned into four, would turn into the whole bar, and then I would make like a mug cake with like an almond flour, um, you know, so it was in my mind, like fairly innocuous. Um, and then maybe I would make two mug cakes and then three mug cakes with like coconut milk ice cream, you know, but it's okay because I was dairy free and gluten free, but you know, it, it didn't matter. You know, what I now know is that I was just continuing to trigger the allergy and it didn't matter whether these foods looked like, you know, these like, Little Debbie's like highly processed cosmic brownies or, you know, the 99% dark chocolate, like I was still triggering the allergy and I would binge on, you know, whatever, whatever gave me that sense of ease and comfort. Um, so, yeah, I tried desperately to control and, you know, the, that six year period between, you know, ages like 22 or so and like 28 um, was, you know, another extension of, of my step one experience. Um, you know, I had to try everything that I could possibly try. Um, and, and yeah, like externally it worked and I lost, you know, I lost the weight. I lost a hundred pounds and everybody in my life knew me as this person who had lost so much weight and like knew how to eat properly. And, you know, but they didn't know that I was binging in secret, that I had this insidious secret, this ever pervasive insidious secret that had persisted, you know, since I was three years old or so. Um, and you know, all the while I was very much, you know, I very much continued to be an atheist and wanted absolutely nothing to do with religion. And my life was just consumed by this disease. Um, and then, um, you know, and all the while, like, I had this, this ever pervasive fantasy that like, I just, I, I, I just wanted to fall in love, you know, I just wanted to find my person and, you know, every attempt to date, and you know meet someone kind of um was short lived and um kind of flamed out because you know because I was very much in this disease i I couldn't really authentically connect with people because i was I was hiding I was ashamed i was you know I couldn't be my authentic self and you know in like late twenty seventeen I was dating someone who had gotten recovered in another 12-step program and he encouraged me to go to um, a program and you know we went to a non-denominational church together and you know that kind of 
I kind of had a willingness to explore spirituality, you know, in my mind at the time, it was just, I'm just going to go because I want to support him. Like, I don't want anything to do with this. Like, I'm, I'm an atheist, but definitely like my codependency um, kind of facilitated me, you know, kind of engaging in this, you know, with him and um, you going to that church and kind of having conversations with him really opened my mind a little bit, you know, and I was able to make this shift and I noticed it in myself, but I made this shift from atheism to agnosticism, you know, and, and rather than there is no God, you know, that this doesn't exist to, you know, it shifted to, I just don't have the answers and I don't want to commit to any answer. You know, I want nothing to do with any of this, but I'm willing to admit that, you know, I don't have all the answers and, um, you know, it kind of chipped away at, at, you know, my, my, the staunchness of like those atheist beliefs that I had. And, you know, then in the spring of 2018, after that relationship had ended, I, I went to see a counselor and um, I wrote on my intake paperwork that I wanted to talk about my binge eating. And that was huge for me because, you know, it was this insidious secret. And, you know, especially after losing much of the weight, you know, nobody knew that I was doing this. And, you know, I just wanted this problem to be solved in me. And you know, I sat down in her office and she looked at my paperwork and she said, someone's looking out for you because, you know, I had years of experience working in eating disorders. And she told me that she got recovered in OA herself. And um, she told me that I needed to go to OA. And, you know, I had, I was obviously familiar with it because I had been to a meeting six years prior and was familiar with 12 steps. And um, I just wanted this problem to be solved. I knew that I had no other answers and I was, I was open to suggestion. And so I went to, you know, what was technically my second meeting with more of an open mind. And, you know, this time I actually listened. And I listened to a woman share her story about how this problem was solved in her, how she found, you know, higher power of her own understanding. And I still wanted nothing to do with God. Um, but I was just, I was humble enough, like this disease humbled me enough that I was willing to have an open mind and keep coming back. And, um, you know, what I, what I now have words for this, you know, in Bill's story on page 12, it reads, it was only a matter of willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. A new world came into view. And for me, you know, that night when I went to that meeting and then as, as I continued to go to meetings, you know, the, the scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. And while I, I was so stubborn about, you know, the God thing and like not even using the word God, like anytime we would read the steps aloud in a meeting, I would close my lips uh, when they said the word God. Um, I kept coming back and I, I just knew that I needed this solution. I was out of ideas, you know, and those, those scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes and, you know, I began to have a spiritual awakening and, um, you know, what's, what's really powerful for me to understand is that, you know, I grew up with religion. I grew up with religious practice and I was never able to cultivate a connection with the higher power just for me. And, you know, and then I spent you know, more than a decade, like 12 years as a very staunch atheist. 
you know, and then coming into this program because I had the desperation of a drowning person, because I needed this disease, you know, I was able to cultivate spirituality. And, um, you know, I, I love what I heard from, you know, a speaker um, in this meeting, you know, the, this, this uh, concept that was adapted from, from Joe and Charlie, I believe that, you know, in that moment where Bill accepted a higher power of his own understanding, religion became spirituality for millions of people. And that's exactly what I needed was um, spirituality and removed from religion. You know, and this, and this big book was able to give me, you know, words, um, you know, prayers and a, a practice, a way of engaging with spirituality that I could embrace because of the desperation that I felt. Um, and I started to, you know, cultivate my own understanding of a higher power. And what was really important for me was not needing to have a perfect concept and, you know, need to know what what it looks like or, um, you know, what it, even have words for it. But what was really, really helpful for me in the first, you know, several months of working the steps, you know, with my sponsor through the big book was just the word trust. You know, I was so resistant to using the word God, and now I use the word God just because it's nomenclature and it's what we have and kind of the best that I can come up with. But, um, you know, for the first several months, like I want to say four months in recovery and um, if not more, and in 2018, um, I, you know, I just used the word trust and I would sit in prayer and meditation and I, I had an experience of of a higher power, you know, I, I would, I would, I would sit with my eyes closed and I would be so distraught, you know, because I, the food, I, I was on a food plan that, um, you know, that I was working with my sponsor and I, I couldn't turn to the food anymore. I was abstinent and, um, and I, I would sit, I was just so distraught with emotion because when the food goes down, the emotion goes up and um, I, w I would just, you know, sit and I would, I would say, you know, God, I trust or not even, not even God, but I trust, I trust. And just those words were hugely helpful for me. Um, that was really my concept of a higher power was, was trust. That word was so, so poignant for me at that time. Um, you know, and I was working the steps through the, the big book with a sponsor that I had met at, at my home group, um, a meeting that is still my home group here in Denver. And, um, and then I went to a retreat in the mountains of, of Colorado in September 2018. And, you know, there was a, a speaker who really broke down the big book, you know, and she, she broke down the doctor's opinion in a way that I hadn't, you know, that in my reading of it, um, and with my limited knowledge, I hadn't understood. And that really changed my life. Um, you know, and, and, you know, this passage in the doctor's opinion, page XXII, you know, the doctor's theory that we have an allergy interests us. And then later we work out our solution on the spiritual, spiritual as well as altruistic plane. And, you know, this concept of the allergy that, you know, my body has an abnormal reaction to certain foods that once I start, I can't stop. Um, and that I have, you know, the, the mental obsession, that I have this twofold illness. The way that it was explained to me was such a light bulb moment. And I felt completely that you know I'm in the right place I just felt it to my core I had an experience in that moment um, and it was it was so powerful um, and really this the sense of like crushing loneliness 
that I had carried for so long began to dissipate, you know, as a result of working these steps. And, um, you know, and, and knowing that I was, I was home, I was among, you know, people who understood who had this, you know, the same problem. And I was able to concede, you know, to myself in working the steps that, you know, clearly I have this problem. I, I completely and wholly identify in with this problem. Therefore, I need this solution. You know, I see this working in other people and everything else I had tried was not working. And, um, you know, understanding my disease really helped in accepting the solution offered. You know, and during that weekend, I was actually in the middle of my fourth step. And, um, you know, shortly after, you know, did my fifth step with my sponsor and, you know, continued working the steps and started sponsoring, you know, later that year. And, um, in, you know, in December of that year, I really, I had a spiritual experience. Um, you know, and I know the big book talks about spiritual experience versus spiritual awakening. And um, I, I mean, if you had asked me, you know, my, in my period of being an atheist, if you had told me that I was going to have a, a spiritual experience where I would like make a con- make connection with God, or really experience God, I would have, you know, said you were crazy um but you know because of because of the depths of where this disease took me and the desperation that I felt and my willingness to work the steps and you know working the steps and and like you know having the spiritual awakening promise as a result of these steps you know I I I had this incredible experience in in December of 2018 where um you know I I was I was actually listening to this meeting to to a special edition. I was, and you know, I'm I'm in Denver, so this meeting starts at six thirty my time, and I'm not a morning person. Um, I I had hoped that recovery would make me a morning person, but as of yet, it's still not. It's still yet to happen. Um, but I was kind of half asleep, half awake, and kind of lucid dreaming. And as I was listening to the speaker share at this meeting, and you know, I was just so distraught with this. Um, this idea that like I just need to meet my person. I just I just want to find someone. You know, I had um, the prior to that the longest relationship I had had was like you know five months, and I just you know at this point I was like 28 years old, 29 years old, um, and I just wanted it to happen. And I was you know I was kind of lucid dreaming and kind of in my dream I I I, I said to higher power which I think at the time I did call God and I, I I told I told God like God I just I have to surrender this to you I, I, I surrender this to you and I felt it I really felt this sense of surrender and this like just this sense of like ease with it like okay this is not on my time um and it was less a logical exercise like an intellectual exercise and more of like an experience and um, you know, as I was listening to, you know, this person share, you know, I heard her, you know, say the phrase, you know, something to the effect of you you can't, you know, expect someone else to fill your God-sized hole. And, you know, in that moment, like, like I was kind of half asleep, half awake, kind of like listening, but that, but that phrase really resonated with me. And I just, I surrendered this to God and, you know, kind of in my, in my lucid dream, I felt like these 
fingertips running down my face. And I'm getting emotional sharing this right now because it was so powerful. And yeah, it, it was it was like I was dreaming and you know whatever, but I really do consider that to be a spiritual experience and an experience of, of real surrender. Um, and I did; I felt a sense of ease with that, and um, I really surrendered that to higher power. And um, and just like two days later, I met like on on New Year's Eve, I met someone who then I I dated for more than a year and you know fell in love for the first time and um and and then um you know a couple actually a couple weeks after that i i met the person who is now my partner and um and we started dating earlier this year and you know we're both in this program and it's you know the healthiest relationship i've ever had and um, you know that act of surrender, that ability to give it up to God, um, was just something that I had never experienced before. Because you know, for most of my life, I was I want I needed to make outcomes happen. I needed things to happen on my timeline. You know, and again, this book, putting words. Um, to experiences, you know, and, and how it works. It talks about, you know, with, with step three that, you know, I was I was trying to run the show. I was trying to be the actor, the director, et cetera. I was trying to make everything happen. And, you know, being able to, you know, have the spiritual connection and really surrender to, you know, this, to God, you know, my concept of God, you know, has absolutely changed my life and has produced this your personality changed for me. Um, you know, and over the next, um, so this is like late 2018. So over the next, you know, several months, I, um, I, I didn't, I, I was absent in a sense, but I, w- I didn't really understand what entire abstinence was. Um, or maybe I didn't want to understand. And so I was I was messing around with different things. And while, you know, I haven't binged since the night before I came into what was, you know, my second meeting, um, I was messing around with different foods, um, you know, like different, like a, a bar sweetened with honey, for example. Um, you know, and, and and then in the summer of 2019, I was, out to dinner with some coworkers and I ordered, you know, a drink with club soda and, you know, they brought it out with Sprite. And I, I didn't want to send it back. I didn't want to not drink it. I was, you know, I was in the obsession and I drank that drink and, um, and, you know, I, I, I really quickly told my sponsor and I, you know, worked my steps around it and thank God it didn't become, you know, a full-fledged relapse and I didn't eat over that. But, you know, I, I realized after that experience that I was messing around with the food and, you know, I wasn't entirely abstinent. And, you know, while I wasn't binging, I was, I was trying to play God in some ways. And there were certain foods that I was ingesting that I was I was trying to, you know, control, exert that control. And, you know, 
after putting those foods down um, in the past couple of years, I've had more neutrality than I've ever had before. And um, it's incredible, you know, that, that these, these foods like, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't love, you know, talking about like foods that are not abstinent necessarily because, you know, everyone has different, you know, expressions of the allergy and, and things that they need. But just for me, you know, I was eating, you know, dried fruit, for example, or I was eating, or I was drinking like kombucha sweetened with, you know, fruit juice. And after putting those foods down, you know, which I was able to, I was able to kind of conceptualize what foods I needed to put down thanks to um, a special edition that, you know, those foods that I, I try to control, that I think I can control, um, that I, you know, that for me that I get a little itchy around, like I, I finally surrendered and I, I put those down and it, just in the past couple years, I've had more neutrality around food than I ever could have imagined, you know, that I really get to eat three meals a day and an optional snack and live life in between and not obsess and not play God with the food and, you know, keep turning, turning this over. And, you know, I like to conceptualize it like this, like abstinence is, is not the goal. Abstinence is really the ticket in the door. You know, abstinence, um, you know, my food plan really treats the allergy. And, you know, I have to have that clear mind so that I can work the steps, which is this spiritual solution, so that I can have, you know, that entire psychic change, that spiritual awakening. And, you know, if I, if I only treat the allergy, it's just a diet, you know, and I tried that for so many years. And it didn't work. And, um, you know, then if I don't treat the obsession with the spiritual solution, like the food is always going to be an option. So, you know, that's why I need this program. That's why I need this spiritual solution because I have a spiritual malady. I have a spiritual problem and I need this solution. Um, you know, and I've seen an entire personality change as a result of working these steps. Um, you know, in the doctor's opinion, XXV, it's, it reads, Something more than human power is needed to produce the entire psychic change. And, you know, what, what I had tried for so many years was to exert my own finite power, you know, power with the lowercase p. And then, you know, I came into this program and I was desperate enough to accept, you know, a spiritual solution and a higher power of my understanding. And I found, you know, a power with a capital P. I found something that could work for me, a concept that could work for me. So I could continue on with the steps and experience this incredible shift. Um, and you know, and today, you know, I work I work the steps around everything and anything because I have to because you know nothing else works. You know, I I have to be abstinent and um, and I have to work the steps. Otherwise, I'm going to go back to the food. And so, you know, I wake up in the morning and I I recite steps one, two, three. And I get on my knees and I say the third step prayer. And, you know, I very imperfectly you know, try to call in God throughout the day and, and ask God to guide me. And, you know, a practice that's been really helpful for me recently is speaking aloud to God, you know, and, and in some ways it's prayer, but just kind of like having a conversation with God, just talking aloud, like, 
um, just different ways of, of connecting, of plugging in to this power that's greater than me throughout the day and, you know, and then working 10 through 12 on a daily basis. You know, anytime that I'm disturbed by something, that I'm upset with something, I need to work a ton of stuff about it because left to my own devices, you know, I'm going to obsess, I'm going to spiral, I'm going to be in my anxiety brain. And then, the, you know, if I don't treat it, then the food's going to sound like a good option. Um, and, and doing the nightly inventory and, you know, prayer and meditation and sponsoring is so, so important. Um, and not only sponsoring, but like being of service to others in this program, giving of myself, honestly, humbly to others, you know, lending my time. Um, you know, really this, this program has given me a purpose, you know, and this, in the doctor's opinion, it uses the term altruistic multiple times. And, you know, that, that is now my purpose, you know, whereas I had, whereas my purpose for, for so long was trying to lose weight desperately, the obsession. My purpose is now trying to be of service to others. And, you know, not only do I do that in this program, um, but also I'm, I'm, just a few months from completing a master's degree in counseling, um, you know, because that counselor who I came to see, who got me into recovery, you know, changed my life. And that has given me a purpose. Um, and, you know, I get to live and I get to try to live to, in service to others. And, um, you know, this program has given me everything. I can now have healthy relationships with people. I can look people in the eye. I can show up authentically as myself and I'm still discovering, you know, who I am and, you know, and, and I, I discover that, you know, through, through God connection, through God consciousness. And, you know, I, I use the term God interchangeably with spirit and inner wisdom and trust and divine presence. And, you know, all I have to know and all I ever have to know is that it's something greater than me. And, um, you know, this disease beat me down so much that I was willing to accept the solution the power greater than me and I just have to know it's not me you know whatever however I conceptualize it however amorphous my understanding and concept of God is is okay you know it doesn't have to be perfect whatsoever it just has to be whatever it is right now to allow me to you know surrender and, and work these steps and live life you know no longer on my own terms but you know on on the terms of, of this power that's greater than me and and constantly seek that and um you know just my my overarchingly my message is you know i was i was that cynic i was that person that you know who, who did not want a god solution who did not i was so resistant so if it can work for me i mean this can work for anyone and i'm just so, i'm so grateful that you know this this book communicates that it's it's a higher power of your own understanding so I get to I get to stop playing God. I get to stop running the show, and surrender to this thing that's greater than me, whatever that looks like. And um, I saw it working in other people, and I knew that it could work for me. And you know, it has. It continues to. And um, I'm just so so grateful for this program, and so grateful to share my story today. And with that, I will pass. Thank you so much, Rachel, for sharing your compelling and remarkable story of transformation this morning with all of us. Truly inspiring. A beautiful story of hope and possibility. Thank you so much for this miraculous presentation this morning. Share ID 18,226. That's 1822. 
3026. Rachel's contact information will be given at the conclusion of the recording, so please stay tuned for that. And we will now transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question to Rachel by pressing star 1 to unmute. I will need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Lori D, California. Carla, Sorry. Carla S. Carla S. Lori D. Katie F. Katie. Christina J. Christina J. <clears throat> Anyone else want to get in this group? Star one to unmute. Carrie B. Carrie B. Darlette P. Is that Darla? Darlette. Darlette. Okay, thus far I have Lori D, Carla S, Katie F, Christina J, Carrie B, and Darlette P. So let's get started. Everybody, please mute except for Lori D. Hi. Um, good morning. Thanks so much for your share. Um, I'm Lori D. in California. I'm a compulsive overeater, recovering. Um, I have a question. I really like what you said about, you know, the abstinence helps you with the physical allergy and um I was just wondering, because it sounds like you had struggles with that in the beginning, the first year. My question is, um, as you sponsor people, and I'm assuming that you are sponsoring people, that do you uh, help them in that area of um, food and abstinence or is that not part of your protocol? If you do, can you give us give me a little bit of an idea of what you might, how you might handle the physical allergy in helping people? Yes. Thanks. Thanks for the question, Mary. Um, yeah. The, um, with, you know, with food and abstinence, I think when I first started sponsoring, like, I spent a lot of time talking about food and looking at food with sponsees. And, you know, what I've, what I've learned is that, like, my role as a sponsor is to get somebody to God. And, you know, that's, um, you know, putting down the food and, and surrendering in that way is necessary um, to get to God. But, like, I don't want to be, like, in someone's food. Um, because I'm just another compulsive overeater and I don't want to try to tell someone what to do with food. What, what I do with sponsees is, you know, we make a list of all the foods that, you know, once they start, they can't stop or, you know, conceptualize it better. Like that I, I try to control, I struggle to control, um, you know, that, I, that I, I just, I can't control. And then we look for patterns there and then we, you know, determine collaboratively, like, okay, these are the, the ingredients, like the common ingredients within those foods. 
that you know we're that we're going to abstain from and that they will abstain from and um you know and then you know when i'm starting working with somebody i do ask them to send me their food the night before um and then you know if i, if I see anything in there that's you know clearly a red light food then i will say something but generally i don't want to be like trying to give people advice about food um but you know, I, I try to you know really frame it like I'm someone here who's helping you be accountable, um, you know, and I, I really try to bring compassion in and you know not be somebody who's here to like like be a gotcha person, but like really be supportive and you know so we collaborate on that and um, and I, I just constantly try to bring it back to God, you know that like, this is about you know the spiritual approach and I really do encourage you know, sponsors as well to um, be a nutritionist. Um, because I, I don't want to be, try to give someone a food plan. Um, but yeah, being somebody who can help them be accountable in that regard and, um, you know, just be, be a safe space where they can be honest about it, I think is hugely important. So I hope that answers the question. Thank you, Lori D. Carla S., your turn. Thank you so much for your share this morning. I really appreciate your time and getting up early. Um, I'm experiencing something uh, I've been sponsoring since about May and been abstinent. I'm constantly, as I'm going through my day, experiencing things that before would have caused me deep resentments or fears. Right now, it's like it's a translator. I have something happen, and my immediate response is still my old, not my response, my immediate understanding is my old understanding but then I hear my recovered understanding. Can you tell me more about that process with you as you're growing in your understanding of your higher power and you're being renewed in your mind? Mm. Carla, that's an interesting question. Yeah, and I think how I'm, I'm understanding your question is like, you know, getting in touch with that intuition, you know, what I like to call kind of inner wisdom. Um, yeah, and, and I'm I'm human, you know, we're human and, you know, those those old ways of thinking and being and behaving are, you know, may be there and may always be there, you know, and those may be our defects, so to speak. And so, you know, being able to, you know, when, when that impulse arises and being able to understand, you know, that that's, you know, being able to identify, like, you know, like this is me trying to play, play God or, you know, this is me and self and then redirect to higher power. I mean, that's, that's, hugely helpful for me is like giving myself that compassion of knowing that like you know the goal here is not to be perfect but it's to be able to like you know through the the work of the steps like understand my patterns and you know my my instinct which may be my instincts you know unhealthy instincts and you know shifting to god and so um what, what i the practice that i really love is you know sitting in meditation and um you know and and i really like you know, what I've heard that prayer is talking to God and meditating is listening to God. So, you know, as I meditate, you know, really just in stillness and gentleness, try to listen and see what comes. And, um, you know, often I do get, you know, intuitive thoughts and phrases that, you know, feel really um, true and and easeful and God-centered for me and that I know is not, you know, my small self. Um, so yeah, just being able to recognize what's going on and, and redirect and listen is helpful. 
Thank you, Carla S., for the question. KDF, your turn. Hi, this is KDF, a recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you so much for your share. Um, I really, really, um, it's really wonderful. And um, so my question is, you said that you identified for 10 or 12 years as an atheist, and then you moved to agnostic. And so it sounds like you have a relationship with God now. I was just wondering how you identify uh, spiritually now. Oh, sure, Katie. Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks for asking for that clarification. So, yeah, so I, I identify as you know, spiritual now. Um, yeah, it was, you know, atheist for many years and then agnostic and, you know, now it's just, I'm spiritual. Um, and that's, yeah, but I guess in short, that's, that's kind of how I identify. And, um, you know, like I mentioned before, you know, my I use the word God, but, um you know, I, I kind of use that interchangeably with a lot of other terms, like spirit or universe or what have you. And, you know, this this program really gives me, you know, a way of of practicing spirituality. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't identify with a particular religion, but I do identify as spiritual. Thank you, KDF, for your question. Christina J, your turn. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Rachel. Thank you for your share. Um, very powerful for me. I related a lot to the trauma in your life, and um, you mentioned dread, the feelings of dread coming up at one point. And the longer I've been in recovery, the more these dark feelings seem to be coming up for me to process and work with God on. And I was wondering if that dread and that darkness still arises for you, and uh, feels like a darkness of an unknown origin. I can't figure it out. I can't put my finger on it. And I've quit trying, really. Um, but what does your step work look like around that darkness or dread when it comes up, if it still comes up for you? Thank you. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, to be honest with you, I haven't felt that sense of, you know, deep existential dread um, since, you know, before I came into this program. I mean, really, I, I mean, it's, for me, it's just been miraculous. Like that, that has been lifted um, as a result of, of the steps. And um, you know, but I, I, that's not to say that I, I don't struggle with you know self pity and you know fear and anxiety and you know et cetera. And um, so yeah, working the steps around it. Um, step ten as needed. Um, you know, taking that daily inventory, getting quiet with God about it, and what was hugely helpful for me, especially, you know, as I put the food down and you know, started working the steps, was just letting myself, you know, pray and meditate and, like, letting the, like, the waves of, of emotion and, you know, pain come and just really let myself cry as, as much and as deeply as I needed to. Um, just let it be there. Yeah. I hope that helps. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Christina J. Carrie B. Hi, this is Carrie B. from Texas. Uh, Rachel, wow. Um, I really think, wow, I can identify so much uh, with your with your story. Um, I'd like to go back to the when you were talking about the self hatred, uh, and 
and then also I have so many questions, but I'll I'll, I'll try to stick with one. Um, the self hatred dealing with. Carrie, we lost you. Sorry. Star one to unmute. Thank you so much. Carrie, could you repeat your question, please? All right, Carrie seems to be having some technical challenges. Hopefully we can work that out. Let's get to Darlette P. now. Darlette P., would you like to pose a question? Star 1 to unmute. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much. I related to so much of what you said this morning, and a lot of it, had to do with the guilt and shame I grew up with. And um, I leaned more towards the agnostic than the atheist. But I, uh, my biggest problem was trusting my higher power, trusting my God. I choose to call him God. Um, I've always had a strong faith, but I, I still have such terrible time with trust. And I know now, you know, I I definitely need to surrender that. And I pray daily for that. Um, but obviously it hasn't happened. And obviously it's in God's time, not mine, because it hasn't happened yet. But I'm so grateful to hear you this morning and I hope that one day I can give you a call. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you, Dorlet P. Anyone else with a question today? Questions, please. Start one time mute. Adele R. Adele R. Anne E. Anne E. Chris G. Chris G. Anyone else? This will be our final invitation for questions. Star one to unmute if you'd like to get on the list. Uh, Barbara W. And Barbara W. Okay. We have Adele R, N, E, Chris G, and Barbara W. Go ahead with your question, Adele. Hi, thank you so much for your share. That was very helpful. And um, I think you've partially already answered my question, but you mentioned the morass of self-pity. And um, I was wondering if you occasionally still find yourself there, if you find there's more emotional intelligence or emotional sobriety and just, um, I guess, speaking to that piece. Thank you so much. Hi, Adele. Um, yeah, thanks for the question. Um, no, I haven't, I haven't experienced that, that morass of self-pity you know, since I came into recovery and 
you know, just to share, you know, a little bit more, like I have experienced, you know, moments of suffering in recovery. Um, you know, my, my brother attempted suicide a couple of years ago and, you know, um, his fiance and I found him, you know, nearly dead in a hotel room. And um, my, you know, other things like my car was stolen a year ago and then it was stolen again a couple of days ago. And, um, you know, I no longer like all that is to say, like, I no longer tick through like all the bad things that have happened to me. And I no longer find myself in that like deep sense of, of, you know, like self-pity, like the hopelessness and, and deep fear. Um, you know, certainly self-pity comes up and, you know, I, I, I go to God with that. Um, I work 10 steps about it and, um, you know, and, and in the, in the past, you know, three and a half years, I haven't had to eat over, you know, those things. Um, so, yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't experienced that. And I think it's in large part, you know, it's, it's due to, you know, being abstinent, working the steps and, you know, having this, you know, this community of people around me and, and this like deep, it's been replaced with a sense of like deep hope that you know we have the solution and it works and you know I'm in the right place and so I, I feel this like sense of belonging and for me that's really the antidote to that bitter morass of self-pity is that is that deep belonging and, and purpose thanks thank you Adele R Anne E your turn Star one to unmute Anne E. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you for the story. I was wondering, how do you talk to someone who's still in the food to help them get out of the food? Thank you. Thanks, Anne. That's a good question. Um, I, I mean, you know, like working with others says, like I, I share my experience. Um, you know, I listen, I listen to their experience and I share my experience and hope that that sparks, you know, that sense of hope in them that it, that this will work for them. And, um, yeah, and, and just try my best to be of service. Um, you know, I, it, it, it's, it's tricky, you know, in, in speaking with somebody who's really in the food and, um, and doesn't have that clear head, um, but, you know, I, I want to believe that, you know, the, the right people come into my life and vice versa. And, um, you know, if I can be of service, I want to be of service. And that sense of desperation that I felt in the depths of where this disease took me, you know, when, when that sense of desperation is in someone else, like they will be um, motivated to accept the solution and, you know, work the, get abstinent and work the steps. But I can't produce that in someone else. Um, I can only be, you know, a tour guide, you know, somebody who kind of guides somebody through these steps, you know, in the way that I worked them, um, but I can't make it happen for them. I, I can just, you know, be of service in the best way that I can. And, you know, the food is the great persuader. Thanks. Thank you, Anne E. The next question comes from Chris G. Thank you. Uh, 
Thank you for sharing your story, especially about your childhood and your mother. And it's so hard to talk about those things, and I appreciate that. I want to I want to ask you about um, the idea of needing more food, more food, more food, not being able to get enough food, and then needing to lose more weight, more weight, needing to lose the weight, and even then when you lost the weight, still being uh, filled with uncomfortableness. So um, I like the term anxiety brain. Can you, uh, can you define anxiety brain for me and talk about being having enough? Can you talk about being having enough? Okay. Yeah, interesting questions. Um, yeah, for me, for me, this anxiety brain is, you know, just my inner ruminations, and um, you know, I I really like you know the phrase that if if I'm in the past I'm depressed, if I'm in the future I'm anxious, if I'm present I'm content, and so. For me, my anxiety brain looks like just spiraling about like different futures and you know future conversations and things that I want to happen and like plans and things like that, um, and just yeah, just trying to play God, trying to manipulate. Um, and you know, I really when I'm in, in that state, I'm really you know living life in my head. Um, and you know, as far as like needing more, um, yeah, I think I mean just what came to mind as you were kind of formulating that question was just the word obsession um you know however the disease manifests it's it's about obsession um whether it's that i you know i'm seeking these foods that are going to give me that sense of ease and comfort and just like wanting to get my hands on the food like am i going to get the food am i not going to get the food and then getting the food and feeling that sense of ease and comfort for like nine seconds and then you know the guilt and shame that sets in or you know the obsession around like trying to restrict my food, like, you know, this drive to, you know, engage in these behaviors. And for me, the, the restrictive behaviors and a lot of the behaviors I had, you know, in, in my 20s were like compensatory measures for the binging. So, you know, at the root of it is, is for me was the binging and all the other behaviors, you know, stemmed from that. And it was just, it was all about obsession, ultimately. I hope that answers the question. Thank you, Chris G. And our final question for the morning comes from Barbara W. Uh, thank you. Good morning. Um, Barbara W., repo, uh, compulsive overeater in recovery. I was interested in knowing what your current spiritual practice is. Sure. Thanks, Barbara. Um, it's yeah it's prayer and meditation and um you know as i kind of talked about i you know i wake up in the morning and i recite steps one through three as i'm in bed like in my head and i you know i get up and i get on my knees and i say the third step prayer and um and then often try to sit in meditation to start the day and you know set the intention to be of service um you know often i'll like read the on awakening paragraphs from the big book during meditation, or I'll, I'll listen to a meditation that recites those paragraphs and just set that intention for the day. Um, and then, yeah, working 10, 11, 12 is hugely spiritual for me, connecting with others in this program, you know, trying to be of service, like connecting with people in this program and 
um, you know, working this step 12 is one of the best ways for me to get plugged into God is to get outside of myself. Um, you know, I, I, I access God through other people. Um, and then as well, like going into nature and like experiencing nature, like when I was in the disease, like my head was always down, you know, so to speak. Um, I, I was just so consumed with self, but in recovery, I've been able to actually like look up and notice, you know, the formulations in the, in the sky with the clouds and notice little details in nature that I would, you know, never would have noticed before because I was just so enmeshed in my disease. Um, so getting out in nature, you know, it's, it's, it's a solitary practice for me, um, but that's, that's really, really powerful for me and it's a way of accessing God. Um, yeah, just all the ways I work this program, you know, going to meetings, actively listening to others' experiences. Um, yeah, those are some of the ways that I connect with God and that I practice spirituality. Thanks. Thank you, Barbara W., for your question. Thanks to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you so very much, Rachel, for giving so much of yourself this morning and carrying a message of depth and weight to all of us. Truly miraculous transformation that we heard this morning. Share ID 18,226. That's 18226. And it's time to close. And we'll do so from page 164 in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then. <laughs>